Hello everybody, I'm your host Hal Curtis and I'd like to welcome you to The Space Industry by Satsearch, where we share stories about the companies taking us into orbit. In this podcast, we delve into the opinions and expertise of the people behind the commercial space organizations of today who could become the household names of tomorrow. Before we get started with the episode, remember you can find out more information about the suppliers, products and innovations that are mentioned in this discussion on the global marketplace for space at satsearch.com. Hello and welcome to the episode. Today I'm joined by James Barrington-Brown, CEO of New Space Systems, a space industry manufacturer with facilities in South Africa and the UK. New Space Systems has developed a strong heritage in the modern commercial space sector, with hardware and services provided to more than 60 clients, including several national agencies. Uh, But this progress is built on a foundation of expertise in so-called old space industry, by applying lessons from working on missions and services in, in years and decades past. And that's what we're going to discuss today. So firstly, James, welcome to the podcast. And is there anything you'd like to add to that introduction? Oh, thanks very much to uh, SatSearch for inviting me and um, welcome to the audience. All right, fantastic. So let's, let's dive into this topic. Now, how do you personally define you know, old space and new space? Where, where are the lines and where are, where are maybe the, the overlaps? And particularly, you know, I think you could be considered as an industry executive who has been one of the drivers of, of this transformation that we've seen. Yeah, well, the first thing is new space isn't really new. I mean, I, I, I see the, the, the grandfather of the, the small set and what's sort of become new space is uh, SSTL, and they launched USAT 1 back in 1981. So we're talking 40 years ago. I joined the industry, a company called SIL, back in 89. We were the first people to fly FPGAs on a European Space Agency mission on SOHO, which is which is still working today. I mean, launched in 95, so that's 25 years ago. And people seem to think that you know, constellations are new. And I was around when they were doing Orbcom and Global Star and uh, Iridium. And they're all back in the, in the late 90s. So, so new space to me is, is, is not new, but it, is, it has moved on. I mean, even a, a lot of people think CubeSats are kind of the, the, the birth of new space. But even those, uh, Bob Twiggs developed that back in 99. So even CubeSats now are celebrating 20 years. But if you're trying to define the difference, I mean, old space is really government-focused where risk was, you know, it was unacceptable for things to fail. And new space really, to me, is more about applications. It's about new business models. It's about doing things using space assets that couldn't be done before. All about closing a business plan. So you have to make the space infrastructure and the launch infrastructure, the ground segment, cheap enough to now close a business case for an application which may have been done terrestrially before, but now can be done in space. So it's all about things like time to market, minimal viable product, uh, total lifetime cost, uh, which would be nice to talk some more about that later on. But fundamentally, the point I wanted to talk about today is, you know, the physics hasn't changed. the, The chemistry hasn't changed. You know, there's still radiation, there's still atomic oxygen, you're still working in vacuum, you're still working in zero gravity. So it's really important not to throw out the baby with the bathwater, as they say. You know, let's let's not try and reinvent everything. There are some things which have been tried and tested, a lot of failures, and you learn from failures. So let's not throw all that away with a new wave of innovation, which is fantastic. You know, we're we're on that wave, but uh, it's really important to learn from our history. Yeah, that's that's really interesting to take on it. Um on that, I think um, teams uh, today have to sort of find a balance between merging maybe the old space, in inverted commas, you know, 
processes with with new spaces commercial technologies. And you're saying that those two things are you know overlap quite a lot. How, how do you think teams can find that sort of balance? I mean, are there any examples you could share based on New Space Systems' own product development history? Yeah, I mean, maybe if I talk a little bit about our approach, I mean, the, the old space way, as I would call it, was a lot of, because everything was risk averse, there was no chance of failure. So a lot of things were about optimization, a lot of analysis. And now the new route seems to be build something and test it. <laughs> And do that rapidly. It's almost like sort of agile, agile process with uh, with software. You do rapid iterations, and and Elon Musk is a, a fantastic advocate of this. You know, his his phrase of uh, his RUD, rapid unintended demolition or destruction or something. <laughs> you know, he, he builds things rapidly, and while he's testing the first one, he's building the next generation, and he tests and he tests. Whereas the old approach, and you can see that in things like the SLS program, launcher programs in the states. They are years behind what uh, Elon's doing. So our approach tends to be um, use digital systems because they're easy to reprogram. So everything we build is, is processor or FPGA based. Over design on the mechanics. So we tend to use big thick boxes and not do, you know, take little pockets of mass out. So things tend to be over mass, but that's also good because it gives you good radiation performance if you've got uh, bigger boxes. And then we test and we test and we test again. And as you know, we really focus on the, engineering model, qualification model stage to make sure that, that what is built is going to work, but do it much more rapidly than the old traditional way. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I think uh, contrasting the Elon Musk approach with the the SLS in <laughs> America is a, a very clear way of seeing that the, the these two modalities that you're talking about. Well, a follow on from that is, you know, we still build stuff the old way. You, know, you, you can't maintain stuff in space. Um, the nice thing is with software-defined things, you can start doing some maintenance in orbit. But the hardware itself, the solder joints, the, the components you use, the PCB quality, all of those are fixed. So we really do focus on what, what I'm also calling old space in terms of the manufacturing of the, of the units. We, we're using very traditional tried and tested methods. Yeah, absolutely. And it's about assuring that quality and reliability, as you say, because you can't go up and, and uh, yet and fix things. So and another way that the industry tries to tries to achieve that that quality and reliability is in terms of standards which suppliers and manufacturers can can use and you know we talk about that's only standards which can actually be adhered to are really genuinely useful and are really likely to succeed in improving that quality now, do you do you see merit in certain standards for new space being you know agreed to by different stakeholders including industries and, and agencies you know through mission experiences that that have, have occurred so far? And how do you see this playing out? Yeah, I think overall standards are great. And you see a lot of parallel industries where people have, have come up with standards and that's accelerated the supply chain and, and, and the market penetration. Um, a lot of people worry about standards will stifle innovation. I think in general, uh, again, a bit like you know learning from your history, you know, there's certain ways of building things, so you should stick to that. There Having a standard doesn't really stop you inventing new things, but you can still talk to the same boxes or whatever. So a lot of people talk about standards at the hardware level, and I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of that, but I've seen many, many companies sort of say, well, this is a new standard, but they're the only people using it. So it's, it's not, not a standard. I mean, I, I, we really focus on process. And there are, I mean, people throw up their hands when you talk about the ECSS processes, which are the ones that ESA use. But... ECSS, by its definition, actually allows tailoring of those standards. So it's a nice kind of framework, and 
you know, there's 101 acronyms, which I hope some of your listeners will understand, like PDRs and CRR, uh, CDRs and MRRs. But if you put it in, in more easy to understand terminology, you know, when you start on a project, you want to sit around and say, are we going in the right direction? You can call it a preliminary design review, you know, PDR. And then once you've got to the end of the design, you can sit around and say, okay, is this really, have we thought this through? Is this what we actually want to build? And that's a critical design review or a CDR. And then you get to the next point, you say, okay, well, have, are we ready to build this thing? Have we bought all the bits? Have we written down how we're going to assemble it? And that's a manufacturing readiness review. And you can go through all these different reviews and ultimately you get to the to the DRB, the, the delivery. You know, Are you talking to your customer to make sure that what you've built for them is actually what they wanted in the first place? And you've ticked all the boxes, you've tested what you wanted, they've got the documentation they want. So ECSS is a, is a great framework, whether people think they're using it or not, I suspect if they're doing proper traditional design, then they are following those kind of rules. And then on top of that, there's some very detailed stuff, which a lot of it, I mean, we don't follow the software uh, ECSS rules. They are just uh, very, very heavy. And you spend you know, months before you actually start doing any coding, which is kind of against this sort of agile flow I was talking about earlier. But when it comes to how do you make a solder joint, how do you make sure there's no gold in the joint? How do you make sure you're not using pure tin because it grows whiskers? Uh, conformal coating, um, outgassing your glues, making sure the materials you use won't give off contaminants, which will damage optics and things. That we follow the, the processes to the letter. And on, on top of that, all that, we, we follow ISO 9001. Some people use AS9100, which is, which is similar. And we started doing that when we were, I don't know, six, six or eight people, which, you know, just because process is really important to make sure you, you build things right. Wow. <laughs> and and as you say, if the process is the logical approach to completing the project anyway, it's <laughs> relatively straightforward to follow. So um, that's really interesting. Now, earlier you, you mentioned the um, you know product life, life cycle cost or lifetime cost. And I know there are, diff- there are different ways of describing this. Now, teams taking, pro- probably a lot of teams taking the new space approach to build emissions are really trying to optimize for reliable performance at, at the lowest price, the lowest sensible price that they can they can um, develop at. Can you share any insights about how teams should be thinking about the real total, you know, product lifecycle cost or lifetime cost of a mission? Yeah, I mean, it worries me when I look at the um, I look at the market. A lot of people are fighting each other to be the lowest cost entrance, and um, that isn't that isn't taking into account the total lifetime cost. As I mentioned, I've been I've been in small sets for <laughs> I guess it's uh, more than thirty years now. And it hasn't fundamentally changed. The driver to go smaller is to reduce mass, and it's all because of launch cost. Now, it's interesting, and we can talk maybe later about whether that's going to continue, but launch cost at the moment is still the driving cost. Even when you go on the transport emissions with with, with uh, Elon, it's, it's still expensive. And so there's no point in building something very cheap if your launch is going to be very expensive or building something very expensive if your launch is going to be very cheap. And uh, the way I've, I've explained to other people is, is um, you see these uh, very long sort of sausage-shaped balloons that uh, you know, magicians turn into to, to dogs and butterflies and different shapes at kids' parties. You know, everything should be balanced. You know, if you squeeze it in one place, then it, then it bulges out in another one. And uh, something I was brought up uh, by my mentor many years ago was – well, I call it the ward law, but basically you want to keep things balanced and you split things into five sections. So your platform cost, your payload cost, 
your launch cost and your ground segment cost should all be roughly the same. Uh, and then the other fifth is contingency. So if something goes wrong, you've still got a backup. And at the moment, I think people are really focusing on lowering the cost of the platform, and that's not a balanced approach. And one of the other problems I see is payload is still too expensive. But I guess that's because payloads are very mission specific and they tend to be made in smaller quantities. But I think there's still some work to be done on reducing payload cost. Right. Interesting. Interesting. So, yeah, that's a great way of looking at it with those five areas. And yeah, it should be very useful for our, our listeners to <laughs> kind of remember. You you mentioned earlier that, uh, you know, you, you'd been working on effectively some co- some constellation programs for, for many, many years. And we know that New Space Systems has also been a, a key supplier to like the OneWeb constellation, for example, in the in the more modern industry, in more recent years, what do you think have been some of the major challenges that you've had to overcome in meeting the volume requirements that those constellations prescribe while keeping up with the quality and reliability, as we discussed earlier? And have any of the lessons from those earlier years, if you don't mind me saying it that way, uh, have they helped? Um yeah, I mean, there is a difference now that volumes have gone up and that that, that is, you know, new space. They've, they've never really done, well, as I mentioned, there were a few constellations, but they're in the, you know, the 40s, 50s off. And now things like uh, OneWeb, Starlink, you know, they're in hundreds of hundreds of units. Um, but again, we can learn from history. I mean, the automotive sector, aviation sector, they're not quite the volumes we're talking about in space, but they've done a lot of work over the years in um, Lean manufacturing and setting up flexible manufacturing lines um, using product trees so you have commonality at uh, sub-assembly level. So we're really focused on that. And, and to try and put it, more, again, in, in terms uh, of your listeners sort of focusing their development, the really important thing is the qualification one. So you know, do some early prototyping and then get something which is the same as you're going to build and really try and break it. I mean, that is your one opportunity to make sure all the margins are there You've designed something right. It's robust to temperature, to vacuum, to vibration, to shock, uh, to EMC, etc. And then what we do after that is we really focus on process. And I think talking about process all the time. But when you're talking automotive or aviation, and now in large quantities of space, it's really important to focus on process. If your qualification model is good and has margins, and you can then guarantee to reproduce that qualification model very reliably, very uh, repeatably, then the amount of verification and test you have to do on each unit itself can go down. And so the majority of our savings on constellations hasn't been in, you know, we still 100% test all our units. Um, and we use things like built-in self-test and automated test and starting to bring in some of the you know industrial revolution 4.0 type things like AI looking at trends and uh, whether things are out of family and that kind of thing, is really focusing on making sure our processes are very robust, very repeatable. And uh, we do a lot of work on making sure that, um, yeah, there's no change. Any change in process is equivalent to a change in the design, and so we have to requalify, et cetera, et cetera. So it's uh, really focusing on that. And then, yeah, design for manufacturing, you need to minimize the number of parts. So uh, things like our torque rods went from about uh, 20 parts to, I think, five on our latest designs. Um, they really focus on um, how to reduce the touch time, so how little our operators have to work on it. Design for tests, we use a lot of jigs. So rather than measuring things, we actually use jigs to make sure the thing is right first time. And then you just have to calibrate your jigs and you know that whatever's built with that jig is, is good. So all of these things are borrowed from uh, automotive. 
Right, interesting. Yeah, and um, yeah, people talk about the the lessons that can be learned from the automotive industry quite often. So it's really, it's really, and sometimes at a theoretical level. So it's great to hear it, you know, from a practical point of view from from you guys. So well, that's fantastic. Now we've talked about a lot of the changes that the new space sector has brought into to space as a whole, and um, you know, some of these I think we're undergoing. Uh, periods of change right now and you're seeing the way that component manufacturers are operating and, and marketing and uh, platform manufacturers are doing a whole range of different things and then there are so many companies that are either becoming more and more vertically integrated or or going the opposite way um, and also the kind of average size of the well, I say average size but the the common sizes of platforms that are used are changing too as various electronics get miniaturized but payloads are some payloads are growing in size because of consumer demands, customer demands, etc. So the market's changing a lot. So I wondered if you, you know, put you on the spot a little bit. If you could step back and look at the new space market as a whole, how do you how do you see things evolving over the next sort of five, six, seven years? What what are you, you know, what were you expecting to happen and what maybe you're excited about, especially with regard to uh, to your company? Yeah, I'm not sure that my views uh, align with the majority, you know, the sages who are looking at the growth of the market. Um, but, uh, but, I'll, but I'll say what I think anyway. <laughs> Time will tell whether I'm wrong or not, but I think there will be a move away from the CubeSat form factor. It has done some great things, and I think there will always be uses for it, and there are certain missions that are suited to it. But uh, again, showing my age, I kind of lived through the personal computer growth, where people were doing some fantastic things with ZX Spectrums and BBC Micros. And and things have evolved. You know, people use uh, Apple and they use PCs, and there are still people playing with, uh, you know, Raspberry Pis and stuff, which developed out of that market. And they do some great things, but they're not really professional in the sense. It's back to this um, total cost, uh, total lifetime cost. Um, there's still some laws of physics. You know, you still need apertures to get photons into your camera. You still need a certain amount of power to to do a comms mission or a, a navigation mission. So you need a certain amount of size, and you can use deployables, but deployables tend to be less reliable. Um, so again, you, you, you're worried about your total cost of, of the system if you have to have a number of missions that, that, that fail. So I think people are going to go slightly larger. And it was interesting. I did a, a, a study of this, which I called the Goldilocks satellite. You know, not too small, not too big, not too complicated, not too expensive. And I came up with a number of about 30 to 35 kilos. And um, uh, Sir Martin Sweeting of SSTL got his team to do a similar study, and they came up with the SSTL 42. Um, so 42 kilos was uh, apparently the sweet spot. And I think the way things are going, I mean, there's Moore's Law, which is improving capability and bringing size down, but apertures aren't going away. And as I said, people are still paying for the data that comes from these missions. So you need to... So get it to an optimal point where you're getting the maximum amount of data for the minimum amount of cost of your constellation or whatever. So I think that you know 25 to, to 50 kilos is a, is a sweet spot. There's some great innovation coming, and, and where, where CubeSats are great is demonstrating you know, this agile, getting things up into orbit fast, demonstrating them, but then using large emissions to actually go to, um, to paid-for services. Um, virtual integration, I also think, is is old space to me. Again, I mean, I, I'm a great a great fan of Surrey, and they went the vertical integration route. And a lot of people have said, well, it was successful for them. Um, we must follow that. And now people are including launch and ground segment in their vertical integration. 
I think we're getting mature enough now to go to a more traditional multi-tier supply chain, similar to, again, to automated to aviation. The rate of development means that one individual company really can't fund all the R&D necessary um, to develop a, a reaction wheel, for instance, and then only use it on their own missions. It's much more sensible for a reaction wheel specialist to make 100 different types of reaction wheel, make sure they've got the latest parts, the latest innovation, the latest design, and sell it to multiple tier one suppliers. And that's really where we positioned ourselves, is, is, is that tier two key in other people's supply chains. And we're, we're on 30 plus recurrent platforms supplying one component or another. And um, they're happy with what we supply. We're very happy that more and more people are coming in at the prime level trying to compete. It's a bit like the old um, adage of the, the gold rush. You know, there are a few people who will mine the gold and they'll make their fortune. But the people who consistently made money were the, the hotel owners, the people who supplied the buckets and the spades. Well, that's, that's really where new space has positioned itself. The other thing I see is, uh, I mean, you mentioned standards. Sort of beyond that, I see more and more mesh-type solutions. So um, Inmarsat has just talked about adding Leo to their geo operations. Um, people are combining um, UAVs with satellite systems. There's new products like uh, high-altitude platforms, um, skimsats, they call them, very low-flying satellites, which are kind of hybrid between a, a high-altitude system and a satellite. Uh, and combining space systems with ground systems, I think, is, is definitely a, a big growing area. And also using smaller satellites to target more performance satellites. And we've seen some recent announcements where, uh, if you take Planet, for example, they have fantastic um, doves, which aren't great resolution, but they can spot change or they can spot something which uh, which is new, and then they can call the bigger, more performant one-meter resolution or sub-one-meter resolution or a SAR satellite to turn, go and take a closer look. So it's all hybrid systems now, not, not one solution which uh, does everything, but a mixture of systems. And again, you see that in terrestrial. Um, and I think we'll start seeing that in space. And then the final one I'd like to th throw in is a lot of people are looking at higher and higher data rate to ground. Um, yeah, people are now looking at laser comm, and that gets around of a lot of things. Um, but to me, it's always amazed me that people have got satellites that talk to one thing on the ground, pretty much. It's like, you know, if every mobile phone had to have its own ground, ground station, it doesn't make any sense. So people like uh, Kepler, I think, have got the right idea where they're looking at um, satellite-to-satellite links. But I think they're already going to be outdated by um, people like OneWeb and Starlink, um, Telesat, where if you've got a broadband system at a fairly high altitude, you might as well use that for your satellite comms. And then you can talk to your satellite 24-7. Um, the data rates aren't so high, but they're 24 hours instead of a 20-minute downlink. Um, so you can get similar volumes of data through a broadband network. Um, so again, you can call that, a, again, a mesh network. You've got uh, smaller satellites in low Earth orbit using larger satellites as their, as their backhaul for comms. So that's, that's some of my predictions, and we'll, we'll see what happens. Interesting. That's, that's great. Well, I think that's a great place to, to wrap up, James. Thank you very much. I think um, that's been really, really interesting to understand your, your views on you know, where old space and new space lies. And I think there's been some very interesting concepts that, for the listeners to take away. You know, the five, uh, five aspects of the mission that you need to balance uh, everything for total lifetime costs, this idea that a change in process means requires a change in design when you're talking about high volume manufacturing, you know, these are really interesting stuff. And then 
yeah, as you say, we'll uh, we'll have to see how the industry uh, develops in the next next few years and um, what happens next with all these companies and all these these missions and services. So, thank you very much for for spending time with us today on the Space Industry Podcast, and we really appreciate it. And you know, wish uh, New Space Systems all the best moving forwards. Okay, thanks very much for uh, allowing me the time to uh, just throw my views out there. Let's see what uh, what the response is like. And to all our listeners out there, thank you very much for spending time with us today on the Space Industry Podcast. If you'd like to find out more about new space systems, please head to the Global Marketplace for Space at satsearch.com, where you can use our free request system to get technical details, documentation such as data sheets or CAD models, quotes, introductions to companies, and whatever else you might need for your trade study or procurement purposes. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Space Industry by Satsearch. I hope you enjoyed today's story about one of the companies taking us into orbit. We'll be back soon with more in-depth, behind-the-scenes insights from private space businesses. In the meantime, you can go to satsearch.com for more information on the space industry today or find us on social media if you have any questions or comments. To stay up to date, please subscribe to our weekly newsletter and you can also get each podcast on demand on iTunes, Spotify, the Google Play Store or whichever podcast service you typically use.